I'm guessing there's been some movement either that I just couldn't see very well from where I was sitting because when I was sitting out the back this morning I thought maybe someone had got a memo that there was a bomb threat in regards to the pulpit because it looked like there was a safety exclusion zone <laughs> all like right here. Uh, oh, that's right, they were, that's the music team who's filled in the exclusion zone. Maybe they're expendable, I don't know. <laughs> but no, there is, there is no such bomb threat. Okay, we're continuing our series of preaching through the, the book of First Thessalonians, which we'll be doing for uh, three weeks so far. We're up to um, chapter 2, verse 17, hence why we had that read. That's where we're up to, uh, and we'll continue um, in future weeks until we get to the end of the book. So let's open up in prayer as we look to God's word together. Heavenly Father, uh, it's a joy to gather together with your people that even though we come from all sorts of diverse backgrounds, Lord, we are united in the sense that we have come to know the good news of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross on our behalf. And Lord, we're united around your word given to us, the Bible. It speaks about your good plan of salvation, tells us who you are. It reminds us sometimes to in a sense which embarrasses it and reminds us who we are, truly are at the core. And it reminds us how we are to live in this world, what it means to live as a follower of Jesus. So we pray by the power of your spirit that your word might be heard by us as your word this morning, that it might be at work in us, changing us to be the people you have created us to be. Help me to speak clearly, work by your spirit to convict, uh, to encourage uh, that we might love and serve you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I was going to pose a question to school teachers, but you don't need to be a school teacher to answer this question. Who can tell me what is the buddy system? Come on, everyone's been to school. Tell me what is the buddy system? Oh, oh me is going to tell us as a student. Tell me what's the buddy system? Ah, so you hear that? Two party, partners going together, so they say safe. It's, it's like when you're out on a school excursion, the teacher says, okay, you've got to buddy up. So you and one other person kind of have this job to make sure the other person doesn't wander off, to make sure the other person stays safe. Now, I'm not going to ask if anyone got really, really embarrassed. They got to maybe year 12 at high school and their teacher still employed the buddy system. Because once you get to a certain age, it feels a little bit overdone doesn't it you think i'm 17 or 18 i'm probably far less likely to wander and get into trouble than i was when i was back in grade one and we look through the scriptures you can't help but notice that the bible often refers to us as followers of jesus christ as god's children and we know very much by the way in which we live we often behave very much like children. I wonder what would be a comparable buddy system for Christians? Now this might seem like I'm going a really weird direction, but it will make sense towards the end. In other words, how can we make sure that we are looking out for one another? How can we make sure that we are caring for one another? Because still by nature, 
We don't by nature drift closer to Jesus without effort. By nature, we will drift apart. How do we care for one another? So to use the line from the, from the movie, that no troll will be left behind. Or no person left behind. It's a quote from the Trolls movie, if you wonder. I'm not making a characteristic nature of the people in this church. But today's message you'll see up on the screen there is part one of two of caring for one another spiritually. Um, next week we'll follow on from what we're looking at this morning. But in the passage that we've seen read this morning, we see Paul's deep-rooted care and concern for the Christians in the church in Thessalonica. He describes as being unbearable, being apart from them, knowing that they're in the middle of hardship and not knowing how they are going in the faith. Next week we'll see that Timothy is comforted. He's, I mean, Paul's comforted. He sent Timothy along to bring a report about how they're going in the faith. And Paul, it is a great joy to hear that in the middle of hard times, Christians are holding on to Jesus Christ. We as human beings are by nature designed for community. You'll notice even when you begin at the big book of Genesis, you'll see the very first thing it says that is not good, it says it is not good for man to be alone. Even God himself for all eternity has lived in the unity of three persons in one. A number of different places, both here and different places where I've lived, I've had conversations with people who work in social work, in fields of counselling, psychology, all of those things. And I asked them questions like, if a church was willing to be a blessing to our community, what do you think are some of the greatest needs a community could have? No matter where I've asked that question, what town, what state, the first answer every single time is people are lonely. They just want someone to spend time with. And I think this highlights the fact that because we are created in the image of God, we are created for relationship. The fact that loneliness is such a big problem says that there's something deep fundamentally within us that desires and is designed for community and for relationship. And if that's such a core DNA of who we are as broken, sinful humanity, how much more... Those who are being redeemed by Jesus Christ more and more into the image of God should relationship and community be a key and important thing. Like when we look through the scriptures, we see things said about the Christian community like this. It speaks about rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony with one another and do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly, never be wise in your own sight. And we see Paul as someone who's really, really concerned for the people that he ministers to. Like in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he lists all of the things that have happened to him, like all of the, the punishments he's received, all of the hardships that he's been through, including a time when he's been beaten and dragged out of the city, left to dead because they thought he was going to die. And after he's listed all of those things, he goes on to say, besides everything else, I face the daily pressure of my concern for all of the churches. Who is weak without me feeling weak? And who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? 
Like after he's talked about things about being stoned, whipped, he says, you know what? On par with all those things, I have a deep concern for the churches. When they are struggling, it affects me, he says. Our belonging together as believers is not like belonging to a club. It's not like you're a member of the RACQ and you just get some extra little perks or if you've got a St Kilda membership because I just haven't put St Kilda into a sermon for a while. We don't just belong to something. We belong to one another. Like the Bible speaks of us as a body, a body which belongs and works together and is in relationship with one another. Anyone who's ever stubbed their toe knows that stubbing your toe affects more than just your toe. Anyone who's a caffeine addict and they get to the afternoon, if they haven't had a coffee and then they have one, they realise that's good for the whole body. Actually, I'm in that category this morning. So when Paul's writing to the Corinthians, when he's talking about them being a body, he says, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honoured, all rejoice together. So he says, what affects one affects the whole because we belong. We, we are one unit together. That's what Christian relationship community looks like. If you've ever looked through the values of Eastgate Bible Church, you'll notice the very first one at the top of the list is love that is genuine and tangible. And so some of the things that we've just described in these verses should be characteristic of a church that embraces love that is genuine and tangible. Now, this might seem like this is really the introduction. You think, this is a sermon in and of itself. And I did actually say to the elders during the week I was hoping to produce two sermons. So you might actually argue that I have, given that I haven't started the passage at all yet. But there's a reason why I've emphasised this a little bit to begin with. Is that in the first century, it was normal to be very community-minded. That's what naturally happened. To miss someone that you had been doing things with and being apart from them, to have a deep longing for them, was normal. But we live at a time that is very individualistic. People aren't as involved in each other's lives. Sometimes we actually try to avoid people, seeing people face to face. We send them a text message or something via Facebook, go through a self-checkout thing because we don't want to have to talk to someone. So it's important to remind us that because this is so different than the way the world around us naturally thinks, to just address the fact that we are a body that belongs to one another so that we can make sense of what Paul is saying about the Thessalonians. And because it doesn't come natural, we will require intentional act of the will and the work of God for these things to become a reality. So this is where we're going. So we actually are getting into 1 Thessalonians. Paul longing for FaceTime, Paul's hope, joy, crown and glory, and being anxious for the spiritual well-being of others. Now, when we've gone through this series, we've gone back to Acts chapter 17 a number of times because it describes when Paul first went to Thessalonica. He went there after being stripped and beaten in Philippi, so he was opposed greatly because of the gospel. Even though many people came to faith in Thessalonica, there did rise persecution. People had issue. They said, these guys have turned the world upside down. And it got so intense that Paul and Silas ended up having to leave the area at night time. And because they kind of 
had to sneak out. Some of those who didn't like Paul and his ministry have made all sorts of claims against him, which we saw last week. And some of that would be built on, well, Paul doesn't really like you guys. He just, he's just nicked off. Where is he now? But in case it's not blaringly obvious, Paul and Silas' departure from them wasn't because they didn't want to be there. Their departure was because it was a necessity for the preservation of their life. And if it's not really obvious that they definitely wanted to stay, look at the way which Paul describes it in verses 17 and 18. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavoured the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. As we've gone through chapter 2, Paul has used various different family images to, to convey his relationship with the church. He spoke of himself as being like a nursing mother, caring for the children. Last week we saw how he spoke about himself as being like a father, doing everything that he might raise them to live a life honouring and pleasing to God. But what's not so clear in our translation here is where it says we were torn away from you, literally is we were orphaned. Now while we think about orphan as being like a, a child taken away from the parents, in first century usage it actually was used both ways of, of parents being taken away from children. So that was the extent to which Paul had a sense of closeness to these people. He says, it feels like I'm being ripped from my own flesh and blood. And then goes off to say in four different ways how much he wants to be there. We endeavoured all the more eagerly, with great desire to see you face to face. We wanted to come to you and we wanted to do this again and again. That can't be left in any second mind about whether or not Paul really did want to be with them. But then it says, Satan hindered us. Now, I imagine when that was getting read, people thought, I wonder what that's all about. What did Satan do? How does he know Satan did it? And you know what? The passage doesn't tell us. All the passage tells us is that Paul somehow reached the conclusion that the reason why he wasn't able to was something by the work of Satan... And for us to then come up with all sorts of speculations as to what that meant, how that took place, really isn't important. If God thought it was important, he'd give us those details. So if you don't mind, I'll keep going. But there's no question his claim about when he says, we were torn from you in person, not in heart. We see Paul as one who deeply loves them, deeply cares for them. Now, up until this point, you could be mistakenly make the conclusion of, I think Steve's just going to preach a, a big, long sermon on loneliness here. It's got an aspect of it, but I think that would be stretching uh, the meaning of the text to a very far extent. I mean, it's certainly clear in the passage, Paul desired to see them and he wanted to be reunited with them. But to say it's a message about loneliness would fall far, far short from what's being communicated here. Because when we talk about missing something, that's very self-oriented, isn't it? Like, if you miss someone, it's not so much you're concerned about the person you're missing, you're, you're, miss, you're concerned about the fact that you're missing out on something. If you're overseas and you miss something about Australia, it's not so much that you miss your Milo and Tim Tam and you're concerned about the Milo and Tim Tam's well-being. 
is that you want it for yourself. And what's very clear here is when Paul is missing them, it's not so much focused on himself. His concern is for them. They're very dear to him. So much so that the way in which he speaks about them, you might be slightly uncomfortable with, and possibly for good reason. When you read through verses 19 to 20, something in you has got to say, can you even use these terms when you're speaking about other people? Paul says, for what is our hope, our joy, our crown of boasting before our Lord at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Does that seem a little bit odd to you? To hear Paul, a Christian, an apostle, to say that these people are his glory and his joy and his boasting. Like if you're thinking through some of the other things Paul writes in his letters to some of the other New Testament churches, you think, hang on, in Galatians 6, Paul says he boasts in nothing else than the cross of Christ. And now he's saying he's boasting in these Thessalonian Christians. You might think, how on earth can these people be his joy? Certainly our joy is in God and in God alone. And they're fair questions to ask. But to understand Paul's use of these words, speaking about the Thessalonians correctly, you need to understand the specific context they come in. He's talking in the context of the return of Jesus Christ and the significance of that. He's not making a general universal statement that if you ask Paul in a conversation, what is your joy, what is your thing you boast in, what do you glory in, his answer is going to be Jesus. His answer is not going to be the Thessalonian church. Neither is Paul saying that when Jesus returns, his hope and his confidence is going to say, Jesus, let me in because look at these people here. I turned them, they were serving idols. Now they've come to the true and living God. Look at the way in which they've been changed. People all around the world are talking about them. Other Christians are using them as example. Look how much good work I've done. Let me in. That's not what he's saying either. Both Paul and Jesus are very clear. No amount of good works we do will make us right in the sight of God. Rather, what Paul is saying is when Jesus returns, he is absolutely confident that the Thessalonians will be there presented before Jesus along with him. Paul's not earning his salvation by what has happened amongst the Thessalonians, but it's an encouragement and it's a joy to him to see the God at work in him and, in a sense, affirming his own faith at work by what is happening in the life of the Thessalonians. So when Paul boasts in them, he's actually boasting in the cross of Christ. It's work in Paul's life and it's work in the life of the Thessalonians. He's not actually making a competing or a contradicting claim at all. The cross of Christ transforms an individual, brings them into a new community, we become God's children, but also we get entrusted with God's message, which we pass on, the message of the cross of Christ, to others and inviting them into God's family. And because the church is, and our Christian community is a family, we earnestly desire what is best for one another. 
And we see Paul's deep interest and concern for them on display in verses 1 to 5 of chapter 3. And I don't think I've seen a description of Christians caring for one another better than what we see in these first two verses. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith. So Paul knows very clearly, when he left Thessalonica, times were tough. There was persecution against the movement of the Christian church. And he had a deep concern for those Christians who were left behind. And he's not just curious, thinking, oh, I wonder how they're going. Paul is deeply anxious for their spiritual well-being. How are they holding up in the faith in the middle of the things that are going on around them? Like when we haven't seen a brother or sister in Christ at church for a while, how long does it pass till we notice they're not here? Do we, maybe six weeks later, does it just cross our mind of, oh, haven't seen that person for a while? Do we make an attempt to contact them? Are we praying for them? Are we actually moved to do something? And then to raise it to what Paul is putting forward, does our love and care for one another so strong that it gets to the point, if we haven't seen someone for a while, that we are so anxious for their spiritual well-being that we find it unbearable? And unbearable to the extent that it causes us to do something. And not does it cause us to do something, but we're willing to sacrifice our things for ourselves in order to do it. Because you see, Paul says, we, I was happy to be left alone on my own in order that I might send Timothy that he might find out how they're going in the faith. As I think about this, I could say, as a pastor, this is an extremely challenging thought. But it's not just as a pastor, it's a challenging thought. As a Christian, as a part of the body of Christ, this is a very challenging passage. Now, Paul has said some things where he's very confident about these peoples in the past. In the first chapter, he says, I know you are chosen by God. He's got no doubt whatsoever that they are saved. He's got no doubt whatsoever that when Jesus returns, they will be with him. That doesn't mean he's unconcerned about the implications of their ongoing life in between the two. And out of his deep-rooted concern for them, what's his solution? His solution is to send Timothy specifically to establish them and exhort them in their faith. That was his primary concern, to encourage them to grow them in the faith in the middle of their hardship. Just because a person's been saved, they have the indwelling Holy Spirit, they have a future eternity with Jesus, doesn't mean we don't struggle with life. Doesn't mean we don't struggle with faith in the interim. What the people needed and what Timothy brought was to encourage them in their faith, to remind them who they are, remind them what Christ has done, what Christ is doing, what the Spirit is at work doing in amongst them, what their future is. But sometimes I think we find it really easy to presume, oh, that person's a Christian, 
They know what the Bible says about these things. Therefore, we presume they'll be right. I've heard them talk about that in a Bible study. They understand how we respond to these things. So clearly, they're not going to struggle. Or maybe you thought, I've seen this person. That person was fantastic at helping this person while they were going through a hard time. So when they go through a hard time, surely they're not going to need help. They're the master. Or what if it's someone who's been a long-term Christian? Or maybe someone in a position of leadership. And you think, oh, I couldn't do anything to to encourage or help them. They're, They're beyond. Even though Paul said in verse 4, he had repeatedly taught them that hardships would come. He said, we told you this over and over again. It wasn't a surprise. But just because they were aware of that does not guarantee that they were prepared or they respond rightly in the situation. Have you ever noticed that when you're stressed, you don't think real clearly? The things, most basic things that you may know to be true about God and the life in which we live, we don't actually often put into practice. We're in the middle of hardship. We don't think right. The flesh, left to its own, if we're not looking to God, will, by nature, wander. And sometimes I've heard stories of people in the middle of that hardship being so profoundly moved by even a child saying some most basic Christian truths that they just needed to be reminded. Things that were in the person's head, but they had not applied to their situation. Paul's first response for their hearts, it was to care for their faith. We see that in verse 5. For this reason, when I couldn't bear it any longer, I sent to learn about your faith. For fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and, your, and our labour with you would be in vain. Just like he was come to the conclusion that Satan had hindered them from coming. He was concerned that maybe Satan had, was using the situation to lead them away from Jesus. When he's talking about it, he's worried that their labour would be in vain. He wasn't worried that they were going to lose their salvation. But he was worried that the good progress that they had begun to make could have caused them to make backwards progress. So what? Well, any Bible passage, if it hasn't got to say what, doesn't make sense. Now, you could very easily come to the presume my application is going to be, well, when people are going through hard times, we should go to them. We should encourage them in the faith. And rightly so, we should. But to say that's what it's all about would fall significantly short of the type of care that Paul is talking about and the type of care that we should have for one another. By all means, reach out to each other during hardship. But I want you to know this. We live in a world that is broken in every way. Hardship is inevitable. Every single person sitting around you this morning either is going through hardship or will go through hardship. Guaranteed. Every single one of you. Now, being an Australian, we can sometimes have the mentality of just need to suck it up. Need to toughen up, princess. If you ever notice when we come together and we have a prayer group or in our community groups or somewhere else and we ask them what we can pray for, often they won't talk about little things. 
Often they won't give it a mention until it's got to no major emergency level before they even say, this is something I need prayer for. At which point you say, why didn't you tell us earlier if this had been a long, slow progress? But imagine a Christian community where believers encourage each other in the faith always. When one another, we encourage one another in the faith in those hard times. When we encourage one another in the faith when we're going through minor difficult times. When we encourage one another in the faith even when life seems to be going as good as it possibly can in this world. Rather than just being emergency first responders that we'd be ongoing carers. Because I think I have it on good authority of the scriptures that that's what we're called to. Hebrews 3.13 says, But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today. Today's called today. When you get to tomorrow, it'll be called today, and so will every day that you live. So that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. I think this is part of what it looks like to have a love that is genuine and tangible. It says, encourage one another every day. Good days, middle days, fantastic days, terrible days, encourage one another in the faith because without the encouragement and the growing up in the faith, we are prone. We can be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. I'd love us to be a church where relationships are so close that when someone is absent for some time, that we find it unbearable to know how they're going in their faith. That we feel like we've been torn apart from a family member. That we'd long to see one another face to face. Now, we don't like giving up much time. We're very time-poor sort of people. We think, maybe I'm going to just quick flick them a quick text and if they don't respond, then that's their problem. That can often be the way we work that would actually think, oh, I, need, I need to spend time with these people. We find it so unbearable that we will give up some things in order to seek them out, to encourage them. Remember what Jesus says? You'll know that you are my disciples because of your love for one another. Wouldn't it be great to have a community of God's people who have such a deep love for one another when people come in and say, this is crazy, I've never seen anything like this. This has to be God at work. So look around. Every single person sitting around you either is going through hardship or will go through hardship. So it's not hard to find someone whom you could commit to thinking, I want to be an ongoing encouragement in the faith for this brother or sister. If that's not something you're not already doing, then I would encourage you, as has been a challenge to me throughout this week, to think, think and pray about who will I look out for, that none will be left behind. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your deep love and care for us. Lord, I know so many times you have pursued me when I have wandered so far. Lord, you call us to be a pursuing people, to warn those who are wandering, to 
to encourage the timid and the idle. But Lord, sometimes we can be so self-focused about getting on in life, doing our things. And so much of those things are things that just pertain to this small life on earth that are of very little eternal significance at all. Stir in us a deep love for one another and a deep love for one another that wants to see each other thriving and maturing as followers of Jesus. And we ask it in his name, by the power of his spirit. Amen.